Hello, mystery and thriller fans, and welcome to Patricia Broderick's Dead on My Feet. I'm Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of Patricia Broderick's Cozy Dead on My Feet. So buckle up. You're in for a wacky ride. We first meet Nellie Bly and her circle of friends at the Coastal Crier, an unsung community shopper distributed in the tiny village of La Jolla. When an international shoe magnate turns up dead under mysterious circumstances, the crew sets out to uncover the grisly secrets festering in their posh seaside enclave. CamCat Publishing presents Dead on My Feet by Patricia Broderick, narrated by Chris Ducart. Chapter 1 Milo is dead. Milo has died. Milo's body was found. How was it possible that I was suffering from writer's block? This had everything— a glamorous, mysterious man, sudden death, the rich and famous. This obit should write itself. I looked at the clock on the wall, ticking out the minutes and seconds to my deadline. Dead being the operative part of that word. I looked over at Finn O'Connor. Milo had been on ice for a few hours before Finn got the news from his source at the cop shop. Since then, I'd been scrambling through our puny archives and the internet to dredge what I could about the creative genius who had shod the carefully tended feet of the elite, from coast to coast and across the globe. Simultaneously, I had been trying to nail a few quotes from the swells who populated La Joya society. Fortunately, my pal and society writer Priscilla Potter had come to my rescue by mining her contacts and supplying a few gems. No! One of Milo's circle commented, That's not possible. Only last night we attended an amazing dinner party on his boat. He couldn't have been more alive. Yes, dead people are usually alive before they're, well, dead. But I had to use what Scylla was sending my way. On the other hand, it was interesting that the designer to the stars and shipping magnate was still alive and kicking only a few hours before his untimely demise. But at this point, the cops weren't sharing any details about the shoe mogul's actual cause of death, just that a couple of kayakers had discovered his body in the cove around sunrise. Hey, Nell, how's it going over there? We need a few minutes to coordinate the copy, so what's your ETA? Oh, shut up, Finian. Give me 15, I'll give you 10. Who died and made you, Ben Bradley? That's when we heard the booming voice of Captain Jack Cobb, the editor-in-chief of the Coastal Crier, who had apparently just woken up from his afternoon snooze on the hammock outside, sleeping off his liquid lunch at O'Toole's Irish pub. Will you two shut up and get back to work? We got lots of folks out there waiting to get the lowdown on the stiff. Sure, 
What would the denizens of La Jolla, California, the jewel by the sea, do without their community rag? Well, they did have access to the internet and social media, not to mention other local media outlets. But we had lots of awesome ads all geared to keeping the rich folks shelling out their megabucks. So who cared about breaking news? Captain Jack was a former commercial fisherman, not a newsman, and lived in his own little bubble. I sure didn't want to be sticking any pins in it today. By mid-afternoon, Finn, Scylla, and I were huddled together, trying to make a coherent package, considering we had so little info and so far had been unable to find the kayakers slash witnesses. So Finn did his best to set the scene, while Scylla and I handled the background on Milo, an enigmatic figure, and salted the obit with the aforementioned gems, such as they were, TikTok. What about Dame Cavendish? I asked Scylla, referring to the dotty dowager who was letting me stay in her guest house in exchange for ghostwriting her memoir. Could you reach her? Scylla shook her head, making her shiny mound of red curls shimmy. Dame C has no cell and she's unlisted. No way will she give out the number for her landline, not even to an influential society scribe like me. Finn and I exchanged a look, but we let that go. Okay, you two, enough with the eye rolls. Scylla growled. That was said with irony. And besides, why don't you try and get her digits? Well, I had no time left to drive up scenic La Joya Shores Road, but I made a mental note to wrestle a phone number out of Dame C. Okay, I'll talk to her tonight for the follow-up, assuming she has anything juicy to convey. Are you kidding? Scylla said, that dame dishes on everybody in the village, especially around cocktail hour. Haven't you started chatting with her about the memoir yet? Actually, it would be easier to try to pin down her squawky parrot Robespierre. Dame C was continually flitting around her manse and gardens, tending to her aviary and her exotic plants, while treating me to stream-of-consciousness declarations about her colorful life. I had yet to start transcribing the notes from the recorder I always kept handy, and I wasn't looking forward to it. In a manner of speaking, I said, but I don't recall hearing her mention Milo. At that point, Finn butted in and pointed at the clock. We done here, ladies? We were. It was time to put this baby to bed. When I arrived in Tony LaJoya six months ago at Scylla's invitation, I had already zigged and zagged my way through a hodgepodge of media outlets, broadcast and print, pushing for my big break. While I was tucked away in the basement of a cable TV station in Kansas, tracking twisters and putting out alerts, get thee to your storm cellars now, an epiphany occurred. Scylla to the rescue. She and I had attended the University of New Hampshire and co-edited the student newspaper with dreams of winning the Pulitzer before we turned 30. That ship had sailed by a few years. Scylla was always more politically astute in handling her career, and unlike me, kept her head down and her opinions to herself. This didn't land her at the New York Times, but she was more than content carving out a nice little niche for herself, ingratiating herself into La Joya society and the party circuit, Life was good. So when I told her that I desperately needed to get out of Kansas, she offered me this gig on the crier, 
a creaky shopper that had taken over a vacated jack-in-the-box, complete with the lingering scent of fried onions and rancid oil. So I packed up my cats, prudence and patience, and the rest of my meager stuff in my 2003 Mustang, and hit the yellow brick road, otherwise known as I-70, for a rollicking ride for miles and miles. My mewling kitties stuck in their carriers in a sweltering summer with a busted air conditioner. With a few stays at Motel 6s, I managed to survive the 23-hour trek with my sanity. My cats have never been sane. I was so eager to take this job that it didn't occur to me to ask Scylla about housing. A mistake, given I was moving to one of the most expensive seaside enclaves on the West Coast. As she is allergic to cats and has an affinity for rich guys, young and old, sharing an apartment was not an option. But she had that all figured out. That's how I met Dame C, a former chorus girl who turned B-movie femme fatale a lot of years ago. Word has it that she started out as a butcher's daughter from Queens. But she had married well, apparently more than once, and reinvented herself as the Grand Dame of La Joya. She lived in a mansion by the sea and just happened to have a granny flat available. Are you kidding? I had told Scylla, I can't afford an outhouse in La Joya on my salary. She just rolled her eyes, telling me, it's not an outhouse. It's a granny flat outside her house, and I brokered a deal for you. All you have to do is help her write her memoir, and the place is yours. Sounded okay. But as the butler ushered me into the main house, it was like walking into a Hitchcock movie. The living room was an aviary where birds of every species perched, cooing and cackling and pooping. Then, gah, this feathered falcon of fury swooped down, wings thrashing, and I shrieked, covered my head with my arms, and ducked for cover. When I looked up, there was Dame Cavendish, descending the spiral staircase, seemingly oblivious to my terror. She was decked out in a vivid green gown trimmed with feathers, and was sporting a feather boa, her head crowned with what resembled a delicately sculptured miniature birdcage. She swept her arm above her head, and the birdies were silenced. Impressive. Gliding over to me and checking me out from head to foot, she frowned. Miss Bly, Priscilla informs me that you are a cat person. She grimaced as though I was actually a rat person. I'm afraid that won't do. If you wish to stay here, you will have to dispose of the felines. Dispose of? Like put them in a sack and weigh them down with stones? But I'm not one to miss an opportunity, so I gave it my best shot. Oh, you don't have to worry about patience and prudence, Dame Cavendish. You see, both of my felines are strict vegans. They'd never touch a mouse, let alone a bird. I offered her my most sincere smile. She considered this and nodded. Well, that's different and most commendable. Little did she know that my kitties would consider her aviary an all-you-can-eat buffet. Dame C then turned on her heel, which was, surprisingly, shod in a sensible-looking gardening shoe, as was the other heel. Follow me, and I'll show you to your new quarters. On our way to the outhouse, I mean, the granny flat, she stopped and turned to me. Is Nilly Bly a pen name? 
Before letting me answer, she added, You must be aware that Nellie Bly is the nom de plume of a 19th century journalist, a, a muckraker. Sob sister was a popular term for female journalists back then, but I didn't correct her. I come by the name honestly, Dame Cavendish. Bly is my mother's birth name. She's a journalist herself and hoped I'd follow in her footsteps. Hence the name Nellie. I didn't mention that my mother chased down real stories all over the world while I merely dabbled. She considered her a fine role model for me. Back at the office, we filed the story and I headed home. That is, to Dame C's estate. I was eager to hear her thoughts on Milo and her reaction to his untimely demise. I wasn't even certain my landlady had heard about Milo. From what I've been able to determine, she has no cable, only a small 50s era TV set tucked away in a back room and a matching radio, circa mid-century, maybe earlier. Whether they worked or not, who knew? Her landline was one of those outsized phones, ornate and lacquered white, the sort that Betty Davis or Joan Crawford would scream into hysterically. She also lived up a twisty, turny road overlooking the sea and isolated. It's not as though a neighbor could pop over any time to chat about what's new in the village, as the hub of La Joya was known as. She did receive the daily paper along with the crier, but her copies wouldn't arrive until tomorrow. Still, as Scylla informed me, Dame C always seemed to have an endless stream of gossip. So she had a pipeline somewhere. Maybe a ham radio? Well, I was about to find out and wasn't crazy about being the bearer of bad news if it turned out that Milo had been a close friend. I had taken to calling my new home Birdland, as those squawky seed bags were everywhere. Quickly, a stoic older gentleman with steel gray hair and a military bearing, who was employed as her butler, retainer, and aide-de-camp, seemed oblivious to the din. I wrapped the ornate bronze knocker carved in the shape of some winged creature, and he answered. Hi, Quigley. I saluted only because he inspired that kind of greeting. Is she in? He nodded and waved me in. As usual, I found myself ducking and weaving to avoid her feathered friends as they swooped and shrieked. The poop smells were not a treat either, and I avoided this place as much as possible. Madam is in her craft room, putting the finishing touches on a feeder for the garden. He gave me a sharp look and added, You know that she does not like to be disturbed while she is working. Quigley's voice was deep and sonorous reminding me of one of those old-time radio announcers. Who knows? The shadow knows. I understand, but a body's been found down in the cove, and I need to chat with Dame C about it. I think she'd want to know because it will be all over the news tomorrow. Quigley sighed and told me to head over to the granny flat, and she'd join me there if she had the time. Dame C seemed to prefer tete-a-tetes there probably because she got a tad cranky seeing me diving under furniture to fend off her demon birds. I trekked across the cobblestones that cut through an emerald green lawn and sloped down to my wee cozy cottage. From the outside, it looked like a gingerbread house. And inside, that theme continued with a tasteful collection of quaint furnishings. It was the sort of place a family of gnomes would call home, 
and there was not one single image of a feathered fiend. I didn't know whether this pleased or dismayed my kitties, who were now snoozing in matching window boxes between the kitchen and living area. My sleeping quarters were in a loft up a short flight of stairs. I had just finished changing out of my work togs into a t-shirt and clam diggers when I heard the rap on my door. And there stood Dame Cavendish, looking regal despite being dressed in paint-splattered overalls and a matching hat, apparently no longer feeling the need to put on airs for the likes of me. She was holding a martini in each hand. Before I could greet her, she handed me a drink and brushed past me, giving my dozing cats the stink eye. Milo is dead, she informed me, settling down on the comfy chair and taking a sip of her drink. I assume you know this, Nellie. So much for breaking news. How did you find out so fast? She waved this off, took another sip, and said, I have my sources. Now, tell me what you know. I sat down on the settee and took a generous gulp of the martini. Not a beverage I normally imbibe, but what the heck? It had been a long day. We spent the afternoon pulling the story together, I said, nibbling on an olive. The cops didn't share much with us, just that a couple of kayakers found Milo's body in the cove. And they didn't say if it was an accident or his feet. I almost choked on the olive. His feet? Milo's feet were encased in very expensive hand-told leather boots, trimmed with the hide of an alligator, she said. And all I could do was sputter. Boots? Stuffed with cement. What do they call it in those gangster movies I used to make? Cement shoes, that's it. Anyway, he didn't sink. Apparently, he got caught up in some flotsam and jetsam and ended up on a sandbar with his head exposed above the water. My head was swimming, trying to process all of this. Maybe it was the martini, which tasted like a double. Well, I guess that rules out Milo falling off his yacht. I was told that he was hosting a party last night, so he must have been murdered after everyone left. John Jeffers went on and on about how alive Milo was. Dame C put forth a very loud and wet raspberry. John Jeffers is a fool. In any event, Milo had his enemies, you know, Nellie. My antennae went up. The kind that would send him to sleep with the fishes? Well, I guess dead men tell no tales. Dame C took another slug. Oh, Milo won't be telling any more tales, dear. It would be difficult when one has a hunk of ivory jammed down one's throat. Chapter Two My head was spinning even faster, so I put the martini glass down and took a deep breath. A hunk of ivory down his throat? Dame C cut me off and stood. Must I repeat myself? And why aren't you taking notes? You want to be quoted for my story? She lifted her hands to the heavens and bellowed, Of course not. Why would I give up these juicy tidbits? You will be recording this from my memoir. Moving into the granny flat had seemed like a perfect alternative to bunking down in my Mustang with two cranky cats. Who knew I'd be pitting Dame C's largesse against my duty to report the news? Dame C, 
Kate, with a C, and never cat. Again, she turned her death stare on my snoozing kitties. You will be chronicling my fascinating life, much as James Boswell did for Samuel Johnson. So, we will need to bond. Therefore, you may call me Sam. I regretted that, even as it escaped my lips. Must I keep repeating myself, Nellie? She sighed, sat, and took another swallow. You may call me Kate, but only in private. Otherwise, I will remain Dame Cavendish, understood? I shrugged. Works for me. But I am working on a follow-up to Milo's, uh, well, murder. Uh, that's my day job, Kate. By the time your little sheet comes out next week, the story of his grisly demise will be all over the news. So my quotes will mean nothing. But you implied that Milo was a tad shady. A tad? Huh, that's an understatement. She stood again with the agility of a woman half her age. Come up to the house with me and I'll share a few nuggets. Dame C, a.k.a. Kate, strode to the door, then turned and glared at me. And for goodness sake, bring a tape recorder or a notebook or whatever modern contraptions you people use nowadays. My landlady, or land dame, as it were, had required me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, prohibiting me from breathing a word about her confidences to anyone, until the memoir was signed, sealed, and delivered to the publisher, and she was making the rounds of the talk shows. Yes, she had a publishing contract with a major imprint. And no, I would not be receiving an as-told-by-Nellie-Bly credit. The glory, such as it was, would be hers alone. But given that her tidbits and nuggets would no doubt be salacious and possibly libelous, I'd just as soon stay below the radar. I fished my micro-recorder out of my handbag just as prudence and patience, my short-haired progeny, stirred and meowed and started to sidle to their feeding bowls in the kitchen. Cats can be a pain, but at least I don't have to walk them twice a day and pick up their poop. Meanwhile, Kate, with a C, folded her arms and tapped her toe, as I opened a can of pussy pate and filled their bowls. When I straightened, Dame C plucked the can out of my hand and read the label, frowning. I thought you said your cats were vegan. She shoved the can a few inches from my face. It says contains meat byproducts. Oops. Maybe I misspoke, uh, Kate, but I really needed this place. And they're house cats, so you don't really have to worry about Prue and Pat breaching your aviary. She slammed the can on the counter, causing the cats to skitter, and stormed out of the house, gesturing at me to follow. Back to Birdland. Dame C led me up a spiral staircase, tossing her painter's cap over the banister, narrowly missing the macaw, or whatever bird it was, and stirring up a new round of squawking and furious flapping feathers flying hither and thither. On the second floor, she strode down the hall and stopped at one of the rooms. At least, I thought it was a room, until she led me inside. There before me was a vast array of shoes, in every color, fabric, and style arranged on floor-to-ceiling shelves. Dame C waved, telling me, 
There are many more, of course, in other rooms, but this should give you a feel for my collection. I strode through the giant walk-in closet, turned on the recorder, and started narrating what lay before me. These are Milo's creations? This is Milo's room, Nellie. I have other rooms devoted to various designers. Shoes, bags, dresses, jewels, and the like. But these are his. Cost me a bloody fortune. I noted the British affectation. Maybe the queen ignited her, or whatever they do when they bestow one of those dame titles. You know, I haven't known you all that long, Kate, but I've only seen you wearing sensible shoes, not stuff like this. She snorted. Indeed, sensible. And that's because Milo destroyed my feet, pair after painful pair, year after year, at soiree after soiree. He deserved to die for that alone, and I am not his only victim. He's made the podiatrists wealthy. They adore him. I was trying to process this last bit, making sure the tape was still rolling. Are you implying that Milo was killed by a woman with sore feet? Dame C reached out and grabbed a diamond and sapphire-encrusted stiletto from the shelf and shook it at me. No, dear. I very much doubt that Milo met his end by inflicting La Joya matrons with bunions and hammer toes. What then? She stroked the stiletto and lowered her voice, whispering into the tape recorder, Follow the ivory, and remember, Nellie, an elephant never forgets. With that, Dame C replaced the stiletto on the shelf and walked out of the closet, leaving me to trail behind, sputtering, Elephants? Uh, what elephants? But she was halfway down the stairs, waving me off, that's enough for tonight, Nellie, dear. I've got to tend to my flock. See yourself out. She turned and started walking away. Dame Ke uh, Kate, any chance you could give me your number? She whirled around, glaring at me as if I'd asked her for the nuclear codes. I give that out to nobody, Nellie. Why do you think it's unlisted? She turned away, but I persisted. Wouldn't Johnson give Boswell his phone number? Did they even have phones back then? She faced me again and let out a dramatic sigh. Oh, very well, she said while drawing her arm up and pointing a fiery red enamel-tipped finger at me. But you must guard it with your life. She then pointed down at my still worrying recorder. Turn that thing off. As she started enumerating her phone number to me, I grabbed my pen and notebook. No notes, she hissed. I will recite the number, and you will memorize it. Understand? How about I just write it down and then swallow the paper? She was not amused. Then she disappeared into the shadows. The second I heard the click of the door closing, I scribbled down the number before my memory faded. It was dark in the living room and as smelly as ever, but the birds seemed becalmed or asleep. I walked softly through the hall and out the back door, carefully navigating down the cobblestone path to my place, all the while trying to figure out what Dame Samuel Johnson was talking about. Chapter 3 
It was sunset. Finn had called one of his sources, Detective Wendy Nakamura, to join us at Starbucks by the Sea, which I much preferred to the Starbucks by the Stalks I had frequented during my Kansas gig. Sitting on the deck, we watched as the now off-duty detective stowed her surfboard in her SUV and waved to us, flashing the one-minute sign. Clad in a wetsuit, she disappeared into a changing room off the boardwalk, quickly emerged dressed in jeans and a tank top, and strolled over to us as gracefully as a panther. Here goes nothing, Finian. I whispered, but he just shrugged and slurped his grande mocha frappuccino. We'll see now, he said, watching her approach. She's cool. Finn was a good-looking guy, in a film noirish sort of way. Equal parts Alan Ladd and Robert Mitchum, with a little bogey thrown in. He would have been at home in a fedora with his press card sticking up. I had never met the detective, but she cut a fine figure, toned and lithe with sleek black hair. Was I jealous? Maybe a little. She dumped her shoulder bag on the ground, took a seat, raised the drink that Finn had ordered for her, and removed the lid, releasing the steam. You like chai tea, right, Wendy? Finn said. Hope it didn't get cold. Nah, she said, blowing on the beverage. By tomorrow, it'll be cool enough to actually drink. Finn sighed and stood up. I'll grab a cup of ice. You ladies get acquainted. Detective Nakamura peered at me through the rising steam, and I felt like raising my hands and proclaiming, okay, you got me, I did it. Instead, I do what I always do when snared in an awkward silence. I babbled. So you're a surfer, out there catching waves, but isn't this feeding time for those sharks? All those seals and sea lions perched on the rocks, a real buffet, right? I caught my breath and slurped my grande black tea lemonade. I get out here when I can, but not often enough, Wendy said, still blowing on the hot chai. Sunrise, sunset, whatever. I don't worry about that. I get in my zone. What about you? Uh, surfing? Uh, nope, I don't catch any waves. I'm more worried about the waves catching me. More gazing through the steam. Why was I feeling guilty? Finn said you came here from Kansas? Is that why you're sea shy? Sea shy. No, Kansas was my last pit stop. Actually, I grew up in New Hampshire, and I loved going to the beach and jumping into the waves. Until one day when I was about eight, I got caught in a riptide. I was scared to death. My mother ran into the water, and a lifeguard grabbed me and pulled me out. I still love the beach, but I'm more of a waiter now. Wendy took a tentative sip and winced probably wondering why Finn was taking so long with her ice. Knowing him, he was working the tables and chatting up the locals for newsy bits. You know what they say, Nellie. Confront your fears. You're missing out. I just met this woman and she was lecturing me? Fortunately, before I said anything I'd regret, Wendy changed the subject. So, you work with Finn at the crier? Yep, I'm on the deadbeat. Okay. Probably not the smartest thing to say to a police detective, but she just smiled. So you write the obits? Well, that hadn't been the original plan, but neither was being a weather girl in Kansas. I launched into defensive mode. Well, in this town, writing obits is more glam than you'd think, Wendy. 
and they rake in buckets of bucks for the paper. So I spend a lot of time polishing these rags-to-riches stories. Fascinating stuff, some of them. It's really an art form, telling their stories. Wendy took another sip and gave me a look. Warts and all, Nellie? Before I had a chance to answer, Finn sauntered over, a cup of ice in hand and plunked it down on the table. His ever-present reporter's notebook was tucked into the back pocket of his jeans, and he pulled it out before he sat down. He then fished a pen out of another pocket, and I knew that Finn had shifted into his let's-get-down-to-business mode. Wendy must have sensed this, too, as she carefully dropped ice cubes into her cup. You're planning to take notes, Finn? I told you, whatever I tell you is on deep background. No notes. Agreed? Finn didn't look happy, but he shoved the pen and notebook to the side. Fine, Wendy, for now. But this story is breaking, and we need to be ahead of the wave. You get that, right? She shrugged. I didn't know the details, but I suspected that the two of them, over time, had developed a mutually beneficial quid pro quo arrangement. Why she decided to throw in with a community weekly and not the big guns, I had no idea. On the other hand, the crier was in the hub of the rich and famous, so we might be worth it. In the case of the late Milo, I figured that was true. Okay then, let me turn the program over to Nellie and she'll share what she knows about Milo from a well-connected source. Finn turned to me. I told her about that piece of ivory, but that's all. I guess that was the lure to get Wendy's attention. Without naming Dame C, I regaled Wendy with the few nuggets that I'd compiled in my notebook, which I had retrieved from my bag. Since I didn't want to identify Kate, I couldn't play my recording especially after I'd signed the NDA. I had to tread carefully between my role as Dame C's Boswell and my feverish desire for a scoop that could get me off obits and back with the majors. Okay, I had never actually made it to the majors, but I wasn't done trying. When I finished, we were all quiet, and Wendy seemed to be digesting all of this and wondering how much she could share, without getting busted down to meter maid, I figured her long-term goal was becoming chief of detectives. We were all on thin ice. Here's the deal, she said, looking at us in turn with that steely gaze of hers. I can't confirm or deny what your source said to you, Nellie, but I will tell you, in general terms, the significance of a hypothetical tusk that may or may not have been lodged in the deceased's throat. We waited. Wendy fished out a folder from her bag and put it on the table in front of her. About 40,000 elephants, give or take, are killed every year for their tusks. And that's very bad news for conservationists, not to mention the elephants. According to a recent NPR report, that leaves about 400,000 pachyderms in Africa. Now, that may sound like a lot, but it's not. That's a tenth of the population wiped out in one year. Finn and I exchanged a look, and he asked, Are you saying that Milo, the shoe mogul, was killed because he had something to do with killing elephants? Was he smuggling contraband? Wendy didn't get her gold shield for being stupid. She leaned forward. Did I say anything about Milo and smuggling? No, Finn. I am merely educating you on the significance 
of a hypothetical tusk. Shall I continue? Looking sheepish, Finn shrugged and sipped his frappuccino. Better to keep his mouth shut. Anyway, the cartels that run the ivory trade know every trick in the book to stay below the radar. Wendy said, turning a page in the folder, they use fake documents and hide the ivory with legitimate products being shipped. Always quick in putting two and two together, I remembered that Milo was a shipping magnate as well. Wendy took a sip of her chai tea and continued, This can involve a variety of ports before the booty gets to its final destination. Sometimes they separate the two tusks from an elephant and ship them at different times, and that makes them harder to track. When authorities do make busts, it's usually the small fry that get caught. It's been hard to nail the big fish, so the beat goes on. Asia is the big market, but it's a problem around the globe, including the U.S. Wendy looked up from her notes. The good news is, a few years back, a biologist found a way to use the DNA in the tusks to find out where the elephants lived. Now they're trying to use the science to track how the ivory is moved to its final stop. Wendy closed the folder and returned it to her bag. Finn tried again. Okay, so hypothetically, if, say, a sliver of ivory was shoved down Milo's throat, that might indicate that he had pissed off the cartel, right? Maybe double dealing or how about this? Milo got turned and was snitching. Well, Finn, anything is possible, hypothetically speaking. What if a conservationist is sending a message? I wondered out loud, let the elephants live or else. Wendy turned to me. Take my advice, Nellie. No wild accusations. Be cool until we get more evidence. I'm not the lead on this but I am involved in this investigation. I can't promise you anything, but I'll give you what I can, when I can. Agreed? Before I could answer, Finn said, when will that be, Wendy? We're up against not only the local and national stations, cable and the daily, the goddamned internet and social media. And we don't even have an online edition yet, because our fearless leader is a freaking dinosaur. Wendy held up her hand like a traffic cop. I know all that, Finn, but I can't risk my job, and right now, all Nellie has are rumors. So, give us a day or two, and I should have something for you, okay? Finn and I again exchanged looks, and then he nodded. Fine, Wendy, but I want to break this story. Nell has a good source, a source that promised more goodies tomorrow. Wendy stood up, hoisted her bag over her shoulder, picked up her cup, and said over her shoulder as she strode away, all for one and one for all. I cocked an eyebrow. I'm getting goodies tomorrow? I asked Finn the moment Wendy was out of earshot. He lifted his empty cup and hurled it into a nearby trash can. All you have to do, Nell, is convince Dame Cavendish that if she helps break the case, her memoir will soon be a major motion picture, and she will be immortalized. Play on her ego. That should work, right? Hmm. 
what would Boswell do? Chapter 4 What fascinated me most about Milo was his organ. Dame C told me during an early evening session, Kate, martini in hand, had commandeered the comfy chair, leaving me with a settee. The tape recorder was running, but I had learned from experience not to trust anything that plugs in or has batteries, so I also was taking notes. I wrote organ in caps, accompanied by a few question marks. He had an organ? I had declined the martini in favor of an iced tea to keep my wits sharp, but I was having second thoughts. Milo was a musician? Kate stared at me and I felt a chill, even though it was a balmy night. Naturally, Milo had an organ. A very unusual one, Nellie. It was shaped like a corkscrew. I must say he was a virtuoso with it, one of his only saving graces. I wrote virtuoso and more question marks. Uh, are we talking about a pipe organ? Dame C was nibbling on an olive, which I was sure she was about to hurl in my direction. Nellie, I do wish you'd try to keep pace with me. No, I'm not talking about a pipe organ. Do I have to spell it out? Well, the cats were snoozing up in the loft, but I doubt they'd be shocked. As for me, this revelation opened a whole new line of inquiry. Not only for the memoir, but for Wendy's investigation and the scoop that Finn and I hoped to land. You and Milo were lovers? Kate was dressed in a canary yellow hostess gown and matching slippers, her long legs tucked under her. She made a face. Love, my dear, had nothing to do with it. It was pure animal lust, and it was a long time ago. Somewhere between my third and fourth husbands, if I recall correctly. Samuel, Kate, Johnson, was not given to a chronological approach to her memoir. She used stream of consciousness, bouncing from midlife to her teen years, then back to her forties, then to one wacky recollection of being in her mother's womb. Oddly, she wouldn't tell me her age, and looking at her, it was hard to tell. She'd had a lot of work done. Good work, too, not like those grotesque pictures you see in the tabloids. So who knew? She could have been 70 or 100. What I had observed was an underlying athleticism, reminding me of Kate with a K, Miss Hepburn. Anyway, Kate with a C was all over the place, and this did not make my job any easier. Look, Kate, I need to be straight with you. Finn and I are trying to figure out the motive for Milo's murder, and the cops won't even tell us if he was murdered. You told me that he was dumped in the cove wearing a set of cement designer shoes, accessorized by a chunk of elephant tusk stuck in his craw, right? She frowned and waved her toothpick at me. That was off the record, Nellie. It's up to you and that dashing reporter to dig up the dirt. And believe me, there is plenty to be dug. Play to her ego. That was Finn's advice. Fine, then feed me more tidbits. If you, Finn, and I can crack this case, think of the publicity you'll get. 
your memoir will fly off the shelves. There will be long lines waiting for you to sign your books. And then the brass ring, the movie, starring Dame Helen Mirren. I watched as Kate's green eyes widened and then narrowed. That won't do, Nellie. My heart sank, but then she added, Helena Bonham Carter, I will accept nothing less. It's a deal. I was on a roll. So if you two were getting it on, you must have noticed something a little sketchy about his business. Maybe there was some pillow talk, shadowy figures, people lurking around that didn't fit his social circles. She sipped her martini, such as. Kate was back to being coy, and I knew that she wasn't going to make this easy. It was a game for her. Such as a murderous cartel smuggling elephant tusks, and God knows what else, into La Jolla, via Milo's ships. Kate nearly dumped her martini as she sat straight up, and I noticed her hand trembling. Who told you that? What, that he had an import-export business? It came up in my res- No, that he was involved with a smuggling ring, Nellie. Do keep up. Oh, well, Finn and I met with a detective he know- You didn't mention my name. No, of course not, and the detective didn't- This detective, she suspects Milo smuggled ivory? How did you know it's a woman? Dame C's stare told me she wouldn't answer that one, so I just continued. She didn't exactly say that she suspected Milo of smuggling, but she did brief us on the smuggling that's going on around the world, including in the US, if not La Jolla. She's willing to share what she knows, but we have to give her something in return. If you know anything about Milo's business or his partners, whatever, we might be able to solve this, you, me, and Finn. A scoop for Finn and me, a movie for you, and a big promotion for Detective Nakamura. What do you say? Kate thought about this and took a bigger sip of her drink. And what happens to me, Nellie? Will they find me floating in the cove with a canary stuffed down my throat? Well, she probably wouldn't be floating. Not with those cement slippers she'd be wearing, but I didn't tell her that. She made a good point. So he was part of a smuggling ring indeed? I knew she wasn't going to answer this one either, but a girl had to try. Kate, if you're afraid, why did you tell me about the tusk in the first place? I mean, the news would have come out soon enough. Kate sighed and put her glass down. I suppose that I was a bit bored and wanted to impress you, I don't know. It didn't seem like a big deal at the time. But now that you're talking about cartels and smuggling, well, it's become so real now. For a brief moment, the veil had dropped, and I could see the vulnerability that Dame C tried so hard to mask. But then she was back to her old self, no doubt dusting off the B-movie chops that had rescued her from the chorus line. Please, shut off that recorder. Kate commanded, I want you to understand that I'm not afraid of them, any of them them. I swallowed hard, shut off the recorder, and put my pen down. Maybe we were entering Wendy's world of deep background. Them? I prompted. Who? Kate didn't answer right away. 
she just kept sliding the remaining olive back and forth along the toothpick. I waited. Milo had his dark side, you know. No, Kate, I didn't know. I never met him. I don't even know his last name. Does anyone? She waved her toothpick at me dismissively. He's had many over the years. Most of them fake, I'm sure, and I never believed a word he said to me. Milo was a genius at reinventing himself. But I only got to personally experience his metamorphosis from a roué to a raconteur. And darling of the jet set, way back when. It was all very heady and glamorous, and I was young and naive. But I have no regrets. I waited. She twiddled. I wouldn't dare judge you, Kate. Truer words were never spoken. I just want to figure out what happened to Milo. If he was mixed up with cartels, other people in his circle could be in danger too. If you know something. Then she shut down. I was pushing too hard. Rising gracefully, she tossed the toothpick into her now empty martini glass and headed for the door. That's all for tonight, Nellie. She said as she opened the door, I'll sleep on this and we'll chat another time. Good night. Exit stage left. Fade to black. Wow, it looks like Milo was running with a cutthroat crowd, and Nellie suspects that no one in his circle is safe. But how much does Dame Kate really know about the underbelly of his business? In episode two, Nellie and Finn do some undercover work at a posh party populated by Milo's circle of friends from La Joya Society. But at this charity fundraiser, the stakes are much higher than they imagine. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, Listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks so much. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.